It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, here in the dark heart of the city <laughs> is Dr. Bones, that mysterious guy, and the beautiful, less mysterious, but incredibly alluring, <laughs> Nurse Amy. I never know what's coming out of your mouth this time. <laughs> the sad thing is that I don't this either. Time. I don't either. <laughs> well, you know what? It's good that you make it up on the fly, because yeah. if you told me, I'd probably tell you not to say that, please. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a nation of normality in a nasty world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net. Not doom and gloom, doom and bloom. Bloom. <laughs> where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Elton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the gang of two, the dynamic duo, the medical matrimony. You know, and we're may- here. What? Yes. I was going to say, maybe I should add something else to that. Maybe I should say, what? Um, let's say, general manager. Oh, of our store. Well, why don't you mention? You can mention the store. We mention the store later on. Okay. So I mean, think about it though. But it's definitely worth talking. I about, run the store. Uh, blow though. your own. Blow your horn. I once run in a the while. store. Right. That's, that's right. part of my duties. Absolutely right. You do a heck of a lot more than <laughs> I can do. That's for sure. Well, we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And hey, friends and neighbors. Yes. Have you been injured in an accident? With a perverse Palomino, well, our attorney says, ouch, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern, please, and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicine 
just isn't in. Yep, that's true. You might end up being the highest medical asset left to your family in tough times. Somebody has got to do it when the ambulance is not heading in your direction. And when it's least expected, you're elected. Can it be done? Well, yes, it can. I say so. You can indeed show the world you got more sense than the good Lord gave a duck that you won't quack up in an emergency. Did you get it? Did you get that? Quack up. I did. That was great. (laughs) You're so funny. Get some training. Learn a little, won't you? And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit like Amy was talking about to go along with all that knowledge? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. Got a workplace, school, or church that could be made safer? Got a home that could be made safer? They're right there for you. And they're designed by, indeed, an honest-to-gosh medical doctor, that's me, and an advanced registered nurse practitioner, that's her. And I dare you to compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. And you are going to agree that our stuff is what you should have in your medical storage. Don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our kits. And our service, personalized service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. You got a lot of order from and those folks I did. just in the last week or so, Towards the end of the year, absolutely. People had money and, you know, you forget to spend it. It shows up. You're like, ah! <laughs> yeah, you don't want to lose it. You make sure Those that... cards will work in the store. The only piece of information that has been missing from anyone who says they can't use their HSA card when they call my service and I speak to them mm-hmm. is your billing zip code. Make sure that if you've moved or you perhaps use work or maybe you're shipping to your work, but your bill goes to your house, whatever address is in the HSA or FSA computer account information is the zip code that you put in to the billing. I can ship it anywhere, but the billing zip code is going to be matched against your card. It's a, it's a security check, folks, so people don't steal your card. Because uh-huh. not everyone knows where someone's bill goes, so... Make sure your billing address, zip code, specifically matches the zip code inside the computer in your account. That's the one hint that I have assured people. And once you've done that, they've all worked. A helpful hint. All worked. I've been on the phone two or three times in the past, well, just before the first of the year, over the weekend. Just that, and it worked. And I had lots and lots of other people who had figured that out and, and did it right. Well, good for you guys. That's I, the one little hint. Yeah, you got to be. Know your zip code. That, there you go. <laughs> hey, you know, it must be painfully obvious to you that we learn as much from you as you do from us. So don't be afraid to say hi, guy, and connect with the geezer and the goddess. It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. That's a group. We have conversations amongst people who are interested in this topic. We also have a Doom and Bloom Facebook page where we put our podcasts and our articles on. If you'd like to stay on Facebook, don't forget the website. Now, we've mentioned that a million times, but that is your true source 
for any of these other things we're talking about. We have contacts. We have direct links to all of the Facebook information. We have a direct direct link on Doom and Bloom to this podcast. There you go. If you click a little podcast button on the top of the website, it'll take you to Blog Talk so you can hear any of the shows you'd like to hear. That's right. Remember to sign up for our feed so you don't miss any of our content that might help you save lives in times of trouble. We also have Twitter at Prepper Show. Again, there's a little Twitter, little Tweety Bird at the top of Doom and Bloom. So if you forget what it is, just push on that and you will be taken to our Twitter page. And also, I have a YouTube link. I try to make it super easy, guys. I know nobody can remember all of these links and all of these social media things that we have, but I put them all in one place at the top of Doom and Bloom. There you go. Oh, and by the way, did I mention you can find some of our articles in great magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, lots of different places. So you'll find us all over the place. And speaking of which, I want you to give me a second to put in a shameless plug for our new book, Alton's <laughs> Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. That, that is That book is a detailed look into the fish and bird antibiotics that you can get online and the infections that they're helpful to cure or prevent. It's about 300 pages. It only concentrates on antibiotics that are available to the average prepper and the diseases those antibiotics cure. I can confidently say our book is unique. You will not find medical school professors talking about this stuff. I'll admit it's controversial in conventional medical circles. You will find it useful, however, if you are concerned about the uncertain future. In Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, we'll discuss how bacteria cause disease, how the immune system works to fight infection, many different disease-causing organisms, and how to identify the diseases they cause, telling bacterial versus viral disease, epidemic disease, pandemic disease, how antibiotics work, the different antibiotics family, how to use them wisely, dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy, pediatric considerations, and each one of them individually categorized and discussed. Also, expiration dates, how to put together a good sick room for an epidemic, wound care, supplies, gosh, so much more. You will not regret having Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibacterials in austere settings in your survival library. Remember that all the information that we talk about is meant for situations where there isn't a functioning modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical professional as soon as you can. Infectious disease, that is of major concern in good times or bad, and the family medic has to be able to identify some of the deadliest. You know, having just written a book on the subject, we've done our research on some of the worst illnesses that can occur even in countries with advanced medical systems. There are infections out there that are often fatal and cannot be treated with antibiotics, and these are usually viral in nature. Viruses are microscopic pathogens, disease-causing organisms that, unlike most bacteria, can reproduce only inside living cells of other organisms. They're very simple entities. As a matter of fact, they stretch the very definition of life. They rarely consist of more than a little tiny bit of genetic code covered with a protein coat called a capsid. Despite that, viral infections can be more than enough to take down the healthiest bull of a human being that you could possibly imagine. Now let's now let's discuss the news coming in about the most pandemic disease of today's age, influenza. 
flu season appears to be picking up, and that's both locally and nationally. Health officials in Pennsylvania and New Jersey have declared outbreaks of influenza to be widespread for the first time this flu season, according to their weekly survey reports of viral infection. This details confirmed flu cases through December 29th, and it isn't getting any better. National trends have been tracked by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, lists so far 11 states reporting widespread flu activity, and that was just up to December 22nd. That is up from six states just one week earlier than that. Imagine what it probably is right now. You know, last this is a big problem because last year some 80,000 Americans died of influenza and its complications, according to the CDC, with more than 500,000 deaths worldwide. The average annually in the U.S. is about 30,000. So that was the most deaths from influenza in a single year since 1976. Now, much of that severity is attributed to the flu vaccine being a poor match to the active strains that are going around this year due to a phenomenon called antigenic shift. You see, each year, the flu virus mutates just a little. That's called antigenic drift. Normally, it doesn't change its makeup much, so vaccines work well against it. But when the strain of flu doesn't match last year's very well, well, it changes a lot. It's called antigenic shift. And since vaccines are made from proteins taken from last year's virus, any virus much different may not be affected by that vaccine at all, at least not very much. And that seems to be what happened last year and might be happening this year as well. The strain of virus is the H1N1, used to be called the swine flu, and that's the one circulating around this year. It's responsible for about 82% of influenza A cases, and it's the same or similar virus that caused, by the way, the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed more than 50 million people worldwide, maybe 100 million, including 670,000 Americans, just as many that died in the Civil War. But don't freak out. There is little reason to believe the current H1N1 variation is going to spark a pandemic. We know a lot more about infection these days and how to protect against it. Now, it remains to be seen how severe this flu season will be or when it will peak. Flu seasons do tend to vary widely from year to year. And indeed, influenza A viruses are going to be probably 95% of all the flu viral cases we see this year. So far, it's been like that since they started keeping records in October. Now, most practitioners say that the best way to protect against the flu is to get vaccinated every year. At the very least, it's supposed to limit how bad the virus will be in the patient. But people who are completely vulnerable, especially people who are immunosuppressed or very, very old or very, very young, may consider limiting their public exposure in areas that are suffering an outbreak. So that's called social distancing, and you may actually have to do it in good times or bad times when the flu is in town. There is a new flu treatment, by the way, called Meloxivir that is going to be available uh, this year, and it's sold under the brand name Zofluza. Now it's with an X, starting with an X, X-O-F-L-U-Z-A. And the great thing about it is that the treatment for it is a single dose. So you can treat the flu with a single dose with this new drug, and the hopes are that it eventually will replace Tamiflu, also known as Osotamivir, which you have to take for five full days. So it is a brand new 
medicine that's out this year that is antiviral, making great strides with the issues relating to viral illness, and that may be one of them. But even with modern medical technology, you know what? You're not going to be able to avoid the occasional respiratory infection. You know, viral illnesses like colds and flus, gosh, they're common issues, even for people who are perfectly healthy. As a matter of fact, they commonly affect people who are perfectly healthy, even athletes. I mean, they're an infection, and they don't care really whether you're healthy or not. It'll just It's just the severity of it that you may wind up having to deal with. In some cases, if the flu is bad enough, it'll kill perfectly healthy people or people who started off perfectly healthy. You can expect influenza viruses to hit your part of the country anytime between late fall to early spring, and most people will weather their illness just fine, but just remember those people that are especially vulnerable may not survive. Matter of fact, influenza has the title the old man's friend because it ends their suffering. And guess how it does that? It, it does it by killing them. The flu may not be life-threatening in normal times. You may not take measures to prevent it. But 100 years ago, that flu pandemic that we had called the Spanish flu, even though it didn't start in Spain, interestingly enough, that ran rampant throughout the world. And if something like that happens again, I'll tell you that the medical infrastructure probably won't be able to handle it. When Ebola hit West Africa, that was 2014, there were only 19 hospital beds, not hospital units, 19 hospital beds in the entire United States that could handle a disease that was that contagious. Now, if you don't strictly adhere to things like hand washing and what they call respiratory hygiene, it might be very easy for your entire family to come down with the flu and, of course, the physical stress associated with all the activities that you do on a daily basis might lead a weakened respiratory system to allow secondary infections with bacteria to cause major trouble. Matter of fact, that's how, uh, how influenzas kill people, oftentimes not by themselves, but by allowing opportunistic infections to take hold. At the very least, influenza affects work efficiency, causes a lot of lost man hours due to sickness, and that can happen. And we talk about survival times and things like that, that can affect work efficiency at a time when everybody has to be at 100%. And if you had the flu before, you know what I mean. Human illness revolves a respiratory tract more commonly than any other organ system. There are droplets loaded with germs that are expelled during coughs and sneezes. They enter the mouth, the nose, the eyes of other people. And as a result, these infections are often highly contagious. The influenza viruses that you're going to see in general are influenza type A. There is an influenza type B also and others. And uh, they classify these influenzas. Remember I mentioned that H1N1 is the one that's around right now. They are classified according to certain proteins that exist on their surface. So if you ever wondered uh, what H1N1 stands for, they are standing for, it stands for hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, H and N. And there are more and more different HA and NA subtypes that they discover every year. But this year, it's H1N1. Now, symptoms of influenza, they begin anytime between one to four days after you're exposed to the sick person. They are similar to the common cold, and they include things like high fever. Now, that is a little not unsimilar to the common cold or dissimilar to the common cold, because fevers usually aren't high in a regular cold, but they do get high in flus. 
Uh, cough, now that does occur in both colds and flus, headaches, severe fatigue, severe muscle ache. It's a matter of severity, really, between colds and flus with regards to that. Now, colds, by the way, will resolve themselves over a week or so. Influenzas tend to last a lot longer. The flu could weaken you enough that secondary bacterial infection can set in. Indeed, these secondary infections are the most probable causes of death related to flu cases. Now, if this happens, you're going to notice that you're getting worse, not better over time, despite the usual treatments. Now, these include medications like ibuprofen for muscle aches and fevers, decongestants for nasal congestion, expectorants to thin out phlegm, cough suppressants, although suppressants, although they really should be used only when there's difficulty breathing or sleeping, and others. As the flu is a viral illness, it's important to know that antibiotics are going to be ineffective to treat it, and that despite one out of three people with viral illnesses like the flu leaving their doctor's offices with a prescription for an antibiotic. It will do absolutely no good. Worse, it will contribute to the epidemic of antibiotic resistance that's occurring in the United States these days. There are, however, a few antiviral flu medications. We mentioned the new one. It will be a uh, single dose. The other popular one is called Tamiflu. It is still available and you can get it from your doctor should actually ask for it at the beginning of every flu season because you never know if you can get in there to see your doctor very quickly and they're most effective if you take them in the first 48 hours after symptoms appear after the first 48 hours a lot less medicinal effect therefore you might consider asking your doctor in, in normal times for a tamiflu prescription beginning of every flu season for every member of your family and for a caregiver with a number of flu patients to treat, the good news is that if you take a half dose daily, instead of taking one pill twice a day, one pill once a day for five days, for a caregiver may decrease your chances of catching it in the first place. Now, there are other non-pharmaceutical actions you can take to decrease the chance of getting or spreading the flu. Cover your nose and mouth with a tissue when you cough or sneeze. Throw the tissue in the trash after you use it. If no tissues available, cough or sneeze into your upper arm or your elbow, not your hand. Wash your hands often with soap and water. Soap and water is all you need to brush off those viruses that might be on your hand that you might stick in your nose <laughs> or something. <laughs> don't do not. that. Don't <laughs> stick not. your finger in your nose. And of course, <laughs> kids, don't do it either. If soap and water isn't available, an alcohol-based hand rub, that will do just fine. Certainly get rid of the viruses for you. Clean and disinfect surfaces and objects like doorknobs that you're going to be handling that might be contaminated with germs like the flu. They can live usually for a period of time on surfaces. Um, you need to establish an effective sick room that's going to decrease the chances of spread throughout the entire family. The sick room should be away from common areas in the house. It should have good ventilation. You don't want to have a room that's just loaded and concentrated with all sorts of viral particles floating it's in the air. It's stuffy, too. And it's you want stuffy. some fresh air in there. Right. You want to give the sick people the best chance of recovery while not getting the healthy people sick as well in your family. So. That is something to we've talked about this. But by the in way. the winter, you don't want to open the window all night long when it's twenty degrees outside. Yes, I would no. mention keeping your patient comfortable. That's exactly, <laughs> and that right. means in a comfortable temperature. So, how would you decrease the viral concentrations in situations where you have to have the window closed? 
well, you use face masks. You use face masks when you're around people who are sick. Uh, and N95 masks are actually the most protective, relatively cheap, honestly. Regular surgical masks are the ear loop kind. They're fine for the people that are, are sick. All you want to do is you want to prevent their droplets from contaminating the atmosphere in the house. If you can stop them at the mask, then you won't have that high concentration of viral particles in the sick room. You should always wait about 24 hours after the last episode of fever before you expose yourself to others. Try to stay away from other people during that time because patients with fever are usually the most contagious. That usually lasts a good three days in people who have things like the flu. The flu might be a bump on the road in your journey, but it just does not have to be the end of the road. All you got to do is pay attention to some simple respiratory hygiene, simply hand washing your hands, and just sort of trying to avoid being in crowds in places where there have been outbreaks. Very important, very simple, but it can keep you healthy and it can keep you safe this winter. Now, cold and flu season is something that usually occurs, well, when it's cold, right? (laughs) Not so much from the actual loss loss of heat, but spending a lot of time inside with other people, breathing in their germs. But, hey, baby, it is cold outside. Baby, it's cold outside. I was going to say, you're going to have to sing that. I'm sorry. Baby, it's cold outside. Well, not here in Florida so much, but just about everywhere else that you could be listening from, I'll bet that it's cold right now. Now, in the winter, northern regions with lots of water features become these vast fields of ice. Minnesota is a land of 10,000 lakes, and I'll bet you that a lot of them freeze over in the winter. Since since the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, you may be tempted to cross that frozen lake rather than go around it. And that's fine if the ice is thick, but there's a risk of falling through the ice. And if so, you're going to be in extremely cold water and an extremely big trouble. Mm -hmm. Now, I wrote an article in American Survival Guide. You probably can see it uh, on the newsstands right right about now, as a matter of fact, about this subject. And you have to realize that ice is a hazard. how, How thick must ice be to sustain the weight of an average person? Now, if you're an average person, 180 pounds, let's say about my weight, Well, at least about four inches for any reasonable activity, like walking across the ice or cross-country skiing, you need about four inches of good solid ice under you in order to have it support your weight. Now, if you're on a snowmobile or an ATV or something like that, you need at least five to six inches, absolutely at least that much, for you to be safe. You always stay off ice that's thought to be less than... Four inches thick, that's especially in warmer days where the ice may be starting to thaw. And you should always realize, by the way, that if you live on the coast, the sea ice is weaker and requires a greater thickness to support the same weight as freshwater ice. I bet you didn't know that. That's something that most people don't realize. Now, your body has various methods that it uses to keep its internal core temperature at an appropriate level. The body core is composed of the major internal organ systems that are necessary to maintain life, such as your brain, your Mm -hmm. heart, your liver, and others. Mm -hmm. And a drop in the core temperature of just about four degrees below normal is all you need to begin to cause ill effects due to the cold. That's a condition called hypothermia. Sounds terrible. It's not something that 
Amy and I we don't have, have to worry about it too much. Worried about too much down here in Florida, <laughs> but whenever we do travel, we're going to be actually in Salt Lake City in just a couple of weeks, and then down oh, yeah. in Las Vegas. We're Boy, driving. It's going to be cold. Wait, but forget you don't. You forgot we're driving. From yes. Salt Lake City. You know we could get caught in some crazy blizzard. We could. You do you realize we could, that? We could without any of our gear. Well, then we'll just drive across the lake. Well, no, I shouldn't say without any gear. We will have medical gear. Yes. Because we're going to the shot show, That's so we're right. gonna have our we'll have tons of first aid kits. I'll if anybody it. gets hurt near us, we'll be able to take care of them. That's but our job. If we get stuck in the snow, oh boy, I don't know how much gauze is gonna help us. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll wrap, we'll wrap ourselves like mummies or and try to keep locks. keep warm. <laughs> That would be very interesting to figure out what medical gear would help us keep from freezing. <laughs> but listen, in cold weather. Your blood vessels do act to try to conserve heat. They constrict voluntarily. They they sort of go deeper into your body, in a sense, uh, and they conserve heat in that way. Muscles will act also. They'll shiver, and that is a way that they produce heat as well. And on top of that, you can voluntarily increase heat with a little exertion. That's why it's recommended to sort of keep moving, you know, sort of, walk up and down or jump up and down in cold environments, it actually does produce heat. Now, when the body is exposed to severe cold, as in the case of a fall through the ice, let's say, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to maintain a normal core temperature. Cold water is denser than air. And what that does, it removes heat from the body via a process called conduction. Water conducts heat away from the body much faster. Some people say 32 times faster than air does, which is pretty bad. I mean, you lose heat very quickly. Oh, yeah. And the higher the percentage of body surface that's submerged under the water, this ice-cold water, the faster that it loses heat. So you're saying we need to stay away from the salt lake. or the great From the great salt lake. Yes, ha, ha, ha. Yes. (laughs) That's a good one, actually. Let's try to stay on dry land. Well, let me tell you something. Call, uh, about something called the 1101 principle. The U.S. Coast Guard has something called the 1101 principle that gives us a pretty sobering glimpse on your prospects if you have to spend time in icy water. If you are dumped, mm-hmm. you're dunked in icy water, you jump off the Titanic into the water. Okay, okay bad idea, but go right, ahead. You have probably about one minute to gain control of your breathing. You have about 10 minutes to realistically help in your own rescue because cold temperatures are going to cause a loss of sensation and the loss of motor control of muscles, something that's known as swim failure. And after about 10 minutes, victims that are in a cold environment and don't have a life jacket, they are going to drown. Oh, no. So the Titanic survivors that didn't have a a life jacket, they drowned within 10 minutes. Now... If you had the life jacket, you got maybe about one hour, maybe more, maybe less, before hypothermia renders you unconscious. And one major factor is, of course, the water temperature. And another variable in a person's survival is the amount of body fat you have. The more body fat you have, the more heat that you're able to conserve, and it might increase the time interval before you become truly hypothermic and unable to respond. So... I'll tell you, unless there was a seat on a lifeboat available, the folks on the Titanic ended up in 40-degree water Water within 10 minutes. They were likely unable to help themselves in any purposeful way. Right. So it is a, a, a terrible thing. 
Now, there's also something called the torso reflex. Then that's what happens the second that you fall through the ice. When, when a person falls through the ice, they experience a physiological reaction known as the torso reflex, sometimes called the inhalation response. And what happens is the body, when it's suddenly immersed in temperatures below, let's say, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, you have a voluntary, involuntary, excuse me, gasp mm -hmm. that you do. And that is meant to increase oxygen intake to the lungs and increase metabolism to build some internal warmth. So it is actually an adaptive thing that your body does. But the problem is when the head is below the surface, when you're dunked completely in cold water, the sudden urge to breathe actually causes water to go right into your lungs instead of, well, you're underwater, so there's no air. When this happens, your airways go into spasm and it causes you, you're probably already disoriented, to panic. And it, you get this massive release of adrenaline and sudden changes in heart rate, blood pressure, things like that. Many people lose the ability to perform the actions that might save their lives. Although some aspect of the torso reflex occurs in just about anybody who's been immersed in cold water, it seems to be sort of variable among individuals. I mean, if, if it involves the face, those seem to be the most severe in immersions. Now, some outdoorsmen who regularly kayak in northern waters uh, actually appear to be less often affected, and that's because they have experience with multiple, I guess, dunkings over time, and they're maybe more acclimated to the cold. And gotcha. certainly somebody who lives in Alaska would be more less prone to get hypothermia than somebody like us, us thin-blooded <laughs> tropical folk. South, South Floridians. There you go. Um, a fall through the ice, certainly life-threatening, but your chances of surviving are much greater if you know what to do. So if you can keep it together mentally, there are a few steps that might just save your life. And so let's talk about those. You should stay calm. The shock of a sudden immersion in cold water makes it difficult to think as well as breathe. And in some circumstances, you may realize the ice is going to break under your weight. You're, you haven't fallen yet. And faced with this, it's important to brace yourself and that, if you can do that, you actually might not inhale water if you go under. That won't be easy, but the more possible if you have some warning that you're going to be dunked. Now, the torso reflex, you might be able to prevent it by covering your mouth and nose with your hands before getting immersed. Just before, as you're falling, cover your, cover your mouth and nose with your hands. If you can establish a seal as you enter the water, you'll have a better chance of not drowning. When I say a seal, I mean a seal of the mouth. Of the mouth and the nose. And not a seal that lives <laughs> under the ice. Although a seal could save you, I yes, guess. Yes, yes. If it was a like magical a, like dolphins, seal. A magical seal like those <laughs> dolphins that save uh, there people. There you go. <laughs> um, the, now, this procedure, by the way, really is something I think everybody should be taught that spending any time in proximity to cold water. You got, And you should maintain that seal over your mouth and nose until your head goes above the surface. So make every effort to stay calm. You've got a few minutes to get out before you succumb to the effects of the cold. Panic is your enemy. Absolutely not what you want to do. Uh, the first thing you need to do, get your head out of the water. This is best accomplished by breathing in, bending back, backwards as soon as you get your head out of the water, not before you get your head out of the water. So as, as you 
uh, surface, again, your head surfaces, mm -hmm. bend backwards and sort of get your head facing the sky. That is important. If there are other people nearby, you're part of a team that's uh, hiking across the lake, shout that you are in need of help. You want to get rid of any heavy objects that weigh you down. The more you weigh, the harder it will be to get your body out of the water. So if you have a pack, you might actually have to have to dunk it, dump it. But remember that you might have some extra clothes, other things that might be useful in there. You just have to know how to release it if you have to. And so you should always know how your pack works and how you could easily get rid of it if you absolutely had to. Now, once that you have done these things, your head's out of the water, you're, you've bent backwards, you want to start treading water. And you want to turn, you want to turn your body in the direction that you came from because you know the ice was strong enough to hold you there. So you don't want to keep looking, you know, you're, you're likely going to end up looking in the direction that you were heading. So what you want to do is you want to turn around as quickly as you can and grab onto the ice in the direction that you came from. And then you're going to want to try to place your arms on the ice. So you want to spread them widely apart in front of you so that you spread out your weight. You want to kick with your feet to give you a little forward momentum. Try to get as much of your body horizontal, and that will help you possibly kick out of the water. If you can't kick yourself out of the water altogether, lift the leg onto the ice if you can, and then try to lift up and roll out onto the firmer surface. You may fail a couple of times, but then maybe reach a point where the ice is thick enough that it holds your weight. Now, once you are actually physically out of the ice, you want to not stand up. Do not stand up. Just roll. Roll in the direction that you were walking before you fell through, and this is going to spread your weight out instead of concentrating it on your feet. That's very important. And then you want to Crawl away until you're sure you're safe. That's probably the most important thing that you can realize is that, you know, the ice has been, if it's been breached, it may not be quite as strong as it was before, but it may be strong enough for you to be able to handle things. Now, my dad had a hint that he sent us, and he said he had just read the article on drowning, and he wanted to give a tip that he was given when he was in the Boy Scouts. Oh, now, my okay. father is in his 70s. So you can imagine how long ago this was. 60, 70 years? Wow, <laughs> 65 well, that's great. Years. 65 years ago, my father was taught in the Boy Scouts. And I quote, The one on survival at sea is great. In the Boy Scouts, they taught us how to drown-proof ourselves. One of the trip tricks was to take off our pants... Tie a knot in the bottom of the legs, zip them up, then flip them over your head. Instant water wings, good for 20 to 30 minutes each time, also held you further out of the cold water. That's great. If you can take your pants off and actually tie a knot, tie a knot at the bottom in of the legs, legs and then flip them. Imagine you're flipping them over and getting air into uh -huh. the water. So they're held with like a balloon full of air. Well, I'll tell and you And then the thing. air slow, slowly escapes. Obviously, it's going to depend on what material your pants are. Mm. But I guess back then they were working on jean material for the most part. Kids were wearing khakis, though, jeans. and things like that. 
So that was the trick he was taught by the Boy Scouts about 65 years ago. That's interesting. Well, you know what? We have uh, we have a home with a pool, and so when the water, weather warms up, we're going to try just that. Maybe we'll even have you film me. I will video that. you. That will be great. And we'll see if that, <laughs> see how that works. And you know what else we can do? We could try a couple different materials too. Yes. I'm, and we'll find be, out what material works best. Well, it'll be interesting. It seems to me, though, that it's a lot of stuff to think of when you're probably in the midst of a panic. So that's how important staying calm is. Yes. So that is something that's really, really important. But thanks, Dad. We appreciate I know. Isn't that awesome? We appreciate the input. Now, listen. Yes. Once you are out and you are now safe. in an area that you know you're safe, for goodness sake, get warm as soon as you possibly can. You're out of the water, but you're not out of the cold, and you're not out of the woods. So get to a warm place if at all possible. Hypothermia is going to be very likely. You're probably going to become hypothermic, and that soaking wet clothing you have is not going to help you. So any spare clothes that somebody, that a hiking partner might have or a blanket available in, in a backpack that has stayed uh, relatively dry, that's going to be an important consideration and going to increase your chances of survival. And so is having a way or, or two or three to start a fire if there is no heat source at hand. So right. that is something that's important. So changing into dry clothing, you accomplish it immediately if you can. And before starting a fire, external heat sources, remember, aren't very effective in penetrating wet clothing. So it's possible you may have to change outdoors if you have to. Try to find the, in just a place that's out of the wind, stand behind a large tree or some other barrier. Now, once you have access to a heat source, get close enough to feel the warmth and bring your knees to your chest and your two and your legs closer together. So tight, tightly together, and so you're bringing your knees to your chest. You're making your like a, a cannon, like you're doing a cannonball. Make dive, that's a perfect description right? of it. Yep. There you go. If you remember that from when you were a kid, that's going to help conserve body heat and have other people share body heat with you if at all possible. You may not be the warm and fuzzy type, but you <laughs> might save your life by doing a little spooning here. Now, of course, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. That makes a lot of sense, right? So you want to avoid situations where visibility might be reduced. Uh, reduced uh, Traversing frozen lakes at night is an example, or maybe during a blizzard or a heavy snow. Bad idea, even in conditions that afford good vision. You probably should steer clear of really unfamiliar terrain. Now, any backcountry travel plans could be shared with other people that, that can send for help maybe if you don't reach your destination at the appropriate time. If your return is overdue, it's good to have somebody who notices that and will be able to begin the rescue process uh, as soon as possible. Good, Absolutely. good policy, by the way, in any season, not just uh, in icy weather. Now, once you're on the ice, you always should look for cracks or abnormal surfaces. The strength of the ice is not the same everywhere on the same body of water. So beware of flowing water that is at the edge, like at a, a, a spring or a stream that is usually pretty actively running. You, you definitely have to be careful because if that's happening, then there's stuff going on underneath that may be weakening the ice above it. And especially if you see ice that looks like it had thawed and then had refrozen, that's also a danger sign. Uh, I'll, now, I'll, some people say you can tell uh, if an ice if the ice is safe just by looking. Uh, 
And I, I think that you by no means can you really guarantee that, but the colors of the ice actually may give you a clue. Well, what it, if there's snow that's fallen on top of it? Right. You, that's the thing. You yeah, can't you might see not, it. You right. might not see it at all. But if you can't see the ice, this is, these are some clues that you might be safer than others, not something that is a guarantee. Don't, it's not, you can't put it in, write it in stone. But if the ice is blue and clear, bluish clear, that's thought to be the highest density. But still, it's only safe if it's four inches thick or greater. If the ice is white and opaque, opaque, well, snow freezes and forms the second layer above the main body of ice. And sometimes there may be air pockets between layers. There may have been ice forming, then a snow, then yep. ice forming on top of that, exactly. then snow ice forming. And there are air pockets commonly between those layers, so you have to be aware of that. And the snow, interestingly enough, can act as an insulator and warm up the ice just a tiny bit just enough to weaken it so that you can't walk on it safely. Now, ice, of course, that's modeled in color is usually unsafe because it's been thawing and deteriorating at the center and the base. There is ice also that is uh, sort of grayish or black colored, and this ice is very low density, definitely unsafe, melting ice most likely, and you do not want to be walking on that. Now, you might consider a life jacket to be overkill on a winter hike, but I'll tell you, it can prevent a tragedy if you fall through the ice. The Coast Guard actually has an approved flotation jacket that's brightly colored and water-resistant that you can use. Uh, some additional items useful to get out of the water include, include ice picks, Yes. maybe. A length of rope, maybe, might be good. Having a whistle as a noisemaker may alert other people that you're in trouble and may carry a little lot farther than your voice can. Uh, certainly, after your gasping and all that stuff from your response to being dunked, uh, an airbag. There is an airbag accessory now available for those people that travel in snow country. It's meant to survive an avalanche, really, but it can be easily deployed to achieve buoyancy in the water as well. And so, what? kind of flotation device is the best kind? Well, it's the one you actually decide to wear. Good point. That's right. If you <laughs> don't wear it, if you don't wear it, it's not going to help you no matter how awesome they are. Hey, we're thrilled to be part of Jack Spearco's Survival Podcast Expert Council and we get a lot of messages and a lot of questions from his listeners as well as our own. We're always happy to answer them and so here's a question that I thought was very relevant regarding EpiPens, the epinephrine auto-injector for allergic reactions. And here it is. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Marty, who writes, My 12-year-old son is allergic to nuts, and his reactions can be anaphylactic. We always have EpiPens on us, and he self-carries, but they're temperature-sensitive and expire annually. The cost for a prescription is between 250 oh my gosh, and 450 wow, for two pens with our insurance, and we need four sets per year to make sure he's covered in all situations. So the questions are, one, in a situation where we can't get replacement EpiPens, how long are the old ones good for? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? How long are they good for if they're stored at room temperature? Two, can EpiPens withstand temperature swings? If we leave ours in the car by mistake, we generally had to trash them as they're so sensitive. And three, are there alternatives to Epi? 
Marty, for those who are hypersensitive to certain allergens like your son, a bee sting or a high pollen count can be life-threatening in the form, indeed, of anaphylactic shock. The treatment for anaphylactic shock is pretty straightforward. It's epinephrine via injection. Once given, epinephrine narrows blood vessels and opens airways in the lungs. And these effects can reverse hives, swelling, severe wheezing, low blood pressure, skin itching, all sorts of stuff. Other methods of delivery, such as oral doses of antihistamines, are generally too slow in their effect to be of much use. You need to have epinephrine by injection. Therefore, it just frosts my cookies that a 600% 2016 price hike from the company that makes the EpiPen or markets it actually put the drug out of the financial reach of so many people. And all this for a product that costs about 10 bucks to produce a two-pack with maybe about a dollar or two worth of drug. Well, enough of that. Let's get to your questions. How long do expired EpiPens continue to provide a beneficial effect if stored at room temperature? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? The answer is no, you might be surprised to know. In May 2017, I wrote an article on a study done by the California Poison Control System in San Diego. They tested 40 unused expired EpiPens and found that all, yes, all of them, retained at least 80% active epinephrine, the main ingredient. This was true even for EpiPens that closed in on the four-year expired mark. The least potent device, as a matter of fact, was found to be at 81% effectiveness 30 months after its expiration dates. Pretty amazing for a liquid medicine. Most of them were actually at 90% or above. So you might want to hold on to those expired EpiPens a little bit longer. You may need to give a second dose, but even the government is reluctant to say not to use them if you have to. Can EpiPens stand temperature swings? Studies show that drugs, especially those in liquid form, stored at 90 degrees lose potency twice as fast as those stored at 50 degrees. So the answer is, well, not so much. Store them in dark, cool, not freezing, dry conditions when they're not in your pocket. Are there alternatives to EpiPens? A number of auto-injectors indeed provide generic epinephrine, but they may be different from the EpiPen in how the mechanisms work. As of 2018, there were three branded products that were available in the U.S., the EpiPen, something called AdrenaClick, A-D-R-E-N-A-C-L-I-C-K, and AuviQ, A-U-V-I hyphen Q. If the auto-injector isn't an option, vials or ampules of epinephrine are available, also by prescription though, for you to premix syringes as needed. 1 to 1,000 epinephrine solution contains 1 milligram of drug per milliliter or cc of solution. For a person weighing 30 kilograms, that's 66 pounds, or greater, give 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters that equals milligrams in this particular case, into the side of the thigh about the level of the bottom of your jeans pocket. Repeat the dose every 5 to 10 minutes, alternating left and right thighs until improvement is noted. One dose is usually sufficient. Remember that epinephrine can cause a fast heartbeat, nervousness, and perhaps a number of other side effects as well. Of course, you want to get the victim to modern medical care if at all possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening.
Hey, we're proud to announce that our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, is a number one Amazon bestseller in several categories. It talks about how to use the antibiotics you can get without prescription in the form of fish and bird meds, the stuff that I've been writing about for years and could help the family medic prevent unnecessary deaths from infection in survival scenarios. If you're a member of the preparedness community, you're going to want this unique book in your library. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of kits and individual items at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time. See you then. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become in these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse? You need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did it.